You're listening to a podcast by New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. Today we start a new sermon series called Thy Kingdom Come, and we're going to be going through the book of Obadiah. And so go ahead and start looking for that in your Bibles. It'll take you a little bit longer probably. Um, It is the smallest book in the Old Testament. Um, It's one of the 12 minor prophets toward the end of the Old Testament, and uh, it's the fourth minor prophet book that we're preaching through this year at New Heights. Even though it's the shortest book in the Old Testament, it's not going to stop your pastors from taking three weeks to go through the whole thing. And um, it's only 21 verses, so it's easy for you guys to read it. Uh, you could actually read it each week, um, read the, the whole thing in its totality. It's good to get the, the kind of the full picture of what God's saying in this book. And we're going to take our time going through it to kind of show you the principles that we believe God's bringing out in his word. Um, At our church, we love verse-by-verse preaching. Uh, We go through books of the Bible because we believe God's word is valuable, and so that's how we do things. And so Obadiah is is what we're going to be in for for this and the next two Sundays. And um, it it was most likely written during the time of exile for Israel. Um, If you know anything about your Sunday school history, biblical history, Um, You know, Abraham was the father of the nation of Israel. God brought him into what's known as the promised land. Um, And a nation is established in Israel. Uh, They are later, uh, they they go due to famine to Egypt and they grow in great number, uh, the Jews do in Egypt, which leads to God sending plagues upon Pharaoh in Egypt for enslaving them and refusing to let them return back home to their promised land. Uh, Once they do um, make an exodus and return to the promised land, they live in the land for uh, quite some time um, under various kings. Uh, You can read in 1 and 2 Chronicles and 1 and 2 Kings in the Old Testament, and you can see the history of that time period. Um, Some of those years are very good as they follow some good kings. Some of those years are very bad as they follow some bad kings. Um, This is why the Lord told them not to have a king, because they would rise and fall with kind of the ebb and flow of humanity rather than God and his law. Uh, What that leads to, their disobedience, leads to them being exiled. Um, They they end up dividing into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom, which was called Judah. Eventually, they, um, they both, both of those kingdoms get exiled due to their unfaithfulness to the Lord. Um, Israel is defeated by the Assyrian Empire, and you can read um, uh, wrath against the empire that conquers them um, in the book of Nahum, a, a book that we recently preached through. Um, the book of Habakkuk is a, is, a, um, is a wrath that's pronounced upon Babylon, the empire that ultimately captures and exiles the southern kingdom of Judah. Now, Obadiah is written during that exile. Obadiah prophesies as well as a lot of other prophets during the exile. Guys like Daniel prophesied during the exile. Jeremiah prophesied during the exile. Um, You have a lot of prophets in the Old Testament that are uh, hearing from the Lord, speaking to the people, and writing down their prophecies during this time of exile, which ultimately will lead to their return, rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, and, um, and then we have Jesus showing up. Okay, So that's a really quick overview of Old Testament history. But where we find ourselves in Obadiah is God calling out a small kingdom called Edom. And this was the southern 
neighbor to the, the southern kingdom of Judah. So God's people directly south of them is a small kingdom, not an empire, not a global empire like Assyria or Babylon, just a small kingdom known as Edom. And it was the direct southern neighbor of Judah. Now God's strong condemnation that we're going to look at over the next three weeks, God's strong condemnation of this kingdom is all predicated on what we're looking at specifically this week, which is the sin of pride. God specifically names the reason for Edom's destruction and downfall is being their pride. So the three, three things I want to show you is that pride will always lead to destruction. You've probably heard a paraphrase of a verse in Proverbs that said, pride goeth before the fall. We always quote it in King Jimmy language, or pride cometh before the fall. Um, and then we'll see that pride always leads to emptiness in our souls, in our lives, in our households. And then uh, finally, we'll look at humility being God's paradoxical way that we actually find ourselves being saved and brought to salvation. Okay, Let's look at the first one. Pride leads to destruction. Have you ever had something in your life that you... Um, um, maybe everyone around you is kind of hyped up. And then when you actually experience that thing, it's not all that you thought it would be based on the reviews and Yelp and everyone saying how awesome it was. Um, I experienced this when I went to Ukraine. Everyone told me how amazing borscht was. And being an American that speaks English, I didn't know what borscht even was, let alone how to spell it, let alone its ingredients. Um, I think Amber Bevan's a big fan of borscht for some reason, but it's basically beet soup. Um, it's the most disgusting thing on the planet, but Ukrainians love it. Okay, so they hype it up to me and I eat it and I'm like, this is disgusting and I stomach it and eat it to be polite. Well, then they come to the promised land of West Virginia and I'm like, now I get to show you the food of my people, biscuits and gravy. And, um, and so like I hype up to Ukrainians one of the times that Etik and Lena visited us. Um, I hyped up all week how great biscuits and gravy were and they had never had biscuits and gravy. And so near the end of their visit, at the end of the week, we go to uh, Tudor's and uh, slapped down some biscuits and gravy on the table. And I'm telling you, they were trying to have a good, polite poker face, but they were disgusted, and it was evident on their faces. Um, and they did their best to stomach it and eat it, but it was so bad that they ended up having to ask for another meal, like another thing to eat, because they just couldn't eat biscuits and gravy. And, um, and, and for, for on, on the value, on the set of values, I think pride is that way. Pride is hyped up in our culture. Pride is, um, is actually kind of propped up in our modern culture as a good thing, but the Bible has nothing but bad things to say about pride. We're told over and over and over again that pride is something that is amazing. It's an it's a honorable and winsome quality in people if they're proud of who they are. Um, now you have this, a lot of times we associate it with um, liberalism, but you have it on, on conservatism as well. And so you have a lot of really conservative political people who are very proud of their heritage and upbringing. You have a lot of liberal um, political people who are very proud of the way that they're born or the way that they are. The Bible condemns everyone in their pride. Uh, the Bible has not a lot of great things to say about pride. Uh, if I could read to you Proverbs 16, 18, that I quoted earlier, it says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride is seemingly condemned in all cases. And it, and it comes as a, as a little bit of a shock to us. And we're like, wait a minute, isn't it good to be proud of things? It, and let me just tell you, when you search the scriptures, you don't find a lot of places to be proud. Um, I'll give you a couple of them. There is a, a good kind of pride that's mentioned in scripture. Um, and it would be the best example I could give is like when you're proud of your children. They accomplish something, you say, child, son, daughter, I'm proud of you for the way that, that you conducted yourself or the thing that you accomplished. But the bad pride is I'm proud of me. And so it, it is actually even encouraged that we'd be proud of other people, but it is very much discouraged in scripture that we'd be proud of ourselves. 
Uh, 2 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul's writing to a church that he plants, and he says, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. Church, there are lots of moments as a pastor that I see you living and, and carrying out the Great Commission and doing the things that God has commanded you to do, and I see those things, and I say, church, I'm very proud of you. Um, and so that's not sinful in and of itself. And I, so really the, the root determination of if pride is sinful or not is if it's selfish or selfless. Um, and so pride that is honoring to God is being, being proud of others, but pride that is dishonoring to God is being pride, prideful in yourself or proud of yourself. Now, there's one indication in Scripture of being proud of your own work, and that comes from Ecclesiastes 3.22 where um, the old man Solomon, kind of at the end of his life, says, I saw there's nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Now, he doesn't use the word uh, pride or proud in Hebrew, but he says you can rejoice in your work. And he finishes by saying, who can bring him to see what will be after him? I think even the way that Solomon writes this, he's indicating that the only way that we can be proud of our work is if it benefits other people. He says, um, I'm not going to be around to see the fruits of the work that I've invested in, but, I, but he, he's seemingly prayerful that it can bless and help other people. It's a selfless pride. And so the idea of, of only having selfless pride is radically different from our modern American culture, which props up and, and stages selfish pride. Our culture says, never change who you are. But the Bible says, no matter who you are, you have to change. That's countercultural. That's counterintuitive. It's paradoxical. It doesn't make sense to us, but it is the message of Scripture that no matter who you are, or how pleased you are with yourself, the Bible calls you to deny yourself and put yourself to death and follow after another who is perfect and higher than you. That's the message of the gospel. And, and pride creeps in and it distracts us from that true principle of Christianity that we are called to deny ourselves. When Jesus described how we're supposed to live our lives, he described it with a cross. Now we wear crosses on our on our necklaces and we get crosses tattooed on us and we've kind of lost the, the imagery a little bit. I mean, we know what the cross means, but I want you to think of what Jesus meant when he said, uh, pick up your cross and follow me. He was, he was describing an instrument of death. He said, take an instrument of death to identify yourself. Kill yourselves if you're going to be a disciple of me, a follower of me. There's no room for pride in the heart of a Christian. And this sin is what God says to Edom is their downfall. He tells Edom, the reason that destruction is coming for you is pride. Let's read in Obadiah chapter 1, the only chapter. We'll read verses 1 through 4 to begin today. The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, Though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. 
You see, God declares that the primary sin of the kingdom of Edom is their pride. And these people were a proud people, and they had long agonized the existence of Israel as their bordering nation. They had been a nuisance to God's people for the entire existence of the promised land bordering them. Matter of fact, Pastor Jeremy next week is going to go into greater detail of, of how, how these two nations descended from two brothers. And we read about in the book of Genesis. Their names are Jacob and Esau. Genesis 25, 25 says the first came out, the firstborn of these twin brothers came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak. So they called his name Esau. Can you imagine this kid being born? He looks like Sasquatch coming out. And, you know, Isaac's like showing pictures to his buddies at work and they're like, hey, cute kid. Um, and... <laughs> If you, if you know anything about the story, you know Jacob comes out um, as, as the second twin born, clutching the heel of his, of his brother Esau, and so they name him Jacob, which means usurper. Or, or, it, the, the name in Hebrew almost means like he was kind of tugging at Esau, trying to get out before him. Um, and that would kind of be descriptive of Jacob's life. Jacob would begin to kind of uh, trick people and uh, do whatever he needed to to come out ahead and... Um, Matter of fact, he ends up tricking Esau out of his birthright. Um, he makes a pot of stew one day when Esau has been out on a long journey, and he comes home weary, literally starving to death. And he's at the point where he's so hungry he's willing to do anything. He said, Jacob, can you feed me? He's, you know, wafting this beef stew that he's made. It's probably Denny Moore. And he's, you know, he's made this. And he's like, man, he's like lifting the ladle. And Esau's like, um, what do you need, Jacob? Jacob says, I'll give you my birthright. Or Jacob says, you give me your birthright and I'll give you this stew. And Esau says, well, I'm, what good's my birthright if I die? And so he says, okay, deal. And Esau just in that moment demonstrates a carelessness um, for something that should have been the most important thing to, them, to him. It would have been all of his father's inheritance. It would have been the lineage of a prophesied family from God and his, and his decree. And in all of those things, um, Esau treated them with carelessness. And then Jacob goes on to trick Isaac to receive the blessing. And, and then in Isaac's proclamation on his deathbed to Jacob and to Esau, he, he blesses Jacob and he says, your descendants are going to be numerous, just like the promise to his father Abraham. And he says, the promise that God has made is going to continue on through your family. And through Jacob, he had 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they inherit the land of Israel. But to Esau, he says that you're going to find yourself in war with your brother. And they begin a rivalry that even in their lineage plays out and their descendants become the nation of Israel and the nation of Edom. Um, Jacob's name is literally changed to Israel by God, which means God prevails or God wins. Even though Jacob was a wrestler, God was the victor. And Esau, whose name means Harry, is changed to Edom, which in Hebrew means red. It's the color of his hair the collar of the stew that he gave his birthright away for, and ironically, it was the collar of the land that his descendants would eventually inherit. You see, the Edomites were true mountaineers. Um, thousands of years later, as they inherit this land, um, the best way I could explain the land of Edom to you would be like imagining Colorado for us. If you've ever seen the Red Rock Amphitheater in Colorado, um, I had the chance to go there last summer and see it. It was just a beautiful sight. 
and you're seeing the rocky cliffs and the high elevations and things like that. That's very similar to the way that the land of Edom was uh, or is set up even to this day. Um, there's the cities, the main cities of the, of the kingdom of Edom, most of them were over 4,000 feet in elevation. And so these were mountain people. And, um, and they actually used this height to defend themselves. And they had a really strong and good military defense because of their vantage point of where their land laid. But the Lord says, your height that you find security in is actually going to be the very thing that makes your downfall even greater. You see, our defenses tend to lead us into false security, and that false sense of security will tend to lead us into pride. And we're a lot like Edom in that sense. We like to find security in the things that we can put around us. Maybe it's not red mountains for you, but we like to find security in wealth. Like to find security in our spheres of influence. We find security in our ability to um, have authority or control over people or circumstances or situations. And the problem with that is that God has called us to be a people of dependence, not independence. We just celebrated Independence Day. We went to the Hamlin Parade. My goal is to convert our entire church to people who honor the great old tradition of going to Hamlin for the 4th of July Parade. Y'all will all get there one of these days, okay? Um, but, the, but the number of New Heights people that watch the Hamlin Parade is growing. Um, but we celebrated independence. And listen, when we're talking about independence from Great Britain, I'm all for that, right? We can all agree, you know, we don't want to be a colony. But that... That spirit lives in us, and it lives as a result of our depravity, and it even starts at a young age. I mean, my kids will say, hey, Dad, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and how I want to do it. And kids get like that. They want to be their own kings and their own queens. And, and if we're honest, as we grow and mature into adulthood, y'all ever, like, ever just at your house sometimes, and you're like, I can do whatever I want? Like, do you ever do that? I, sometimes it just hits me like I'm actually an adult. Like it's just hitting me at age 35. Like I realize it sometimes. And then, and then it, it also hits me that I can't do whatever I want. I, I'm called upon to honor the Lord with my life. I have a responsibility with a job and a wife and children and so forth and so on. And, and, and so although we have this kind of depraved longing for us to be independent, we're called to be in responsibility independence on multiple tiers and levels. You've always been called to dependence. All of God's people have always been called to be dependent, to be dependent on God first and foremost, but guess what? Also to be dependent upon other people, to be in community, to love one another and to help one another. We're supposed to need each other and we all have to need God. And if you want a good definition of pride, it's the opposite of that. Pride is the selfish proclamation that I'm fine the way I am and I don't need y'all and I don't need God. That's what pride is. And it leads to destruction and secondly, it leads to emptiness. You see, pride is ultimately rooted in self-sufficiency. The Hebrew word just means to be arrogant in oneself. It means that, that you find yourself to be fine the way you are and sufficient in and of yourself. It's the Hebrew word zundon and it comes from a Hebrew verb a zud, which means to boil. Um, it, you think about water boiling in a pot, how slow that happens, right? There's an old saying, a watch pot never boils, right? My 11-year-old son this week got a certificate in welding. He learned to weld. Like, that's, I'm done with Micah. I'm going to ask Micah to move out, like, so I can focus on my other four kids. I'm like, 
son, you're making money, go get you a nice apartment and you're buy your truck, you'd be on your own, right? And so he learns to weld. So he's like really competent in some ways. But then the other, the other day he's wanting to boil eggs so he can eat eggs at the house. And, and Amanda was like, go boil some water. And he's like, how do I do that? <laughs> I'm like, you can, you can like do all that welding stuff. But like, all right. So he goes, and, and so Amanda's giving him like step by step how to boil water. And so, you know, it's pretty simple. Put water in a pot, turn the stove on. And he stands there and just starts staring at it. And he's like, okay, can I put the eggs in yet? And we're like, just wait till it boils, man. And he's like, well, there's little bubbles coming on the bottom. And I'm like, it's going to be a minute. Just give it some time. And he's like, all right, I'll just keep watching it. And he's like, it's still not doing what it needs to do, Dad. You know, and he was starting to learn the, the origin of the saying, a watch pot never boils. And there's a reason that the Hebrews connected boiling to pride. Number one, because it was something that could scald and injure other people once it got hot. But also because it came about very slowly. It took a long time. You see, pride doesn't just show up and manifest itself all in its full force in one day. It begins slowly and it grows within us as something dangerous to our faith. And Esau very slowly became a prideful man in a, in a rivalry with his brother, wanting nothing more than to end him. And the same word for boil is used to describe Jacob's cooking of the stew that he would eventually give up his inheritance for. And as his foolish independence boiled up in him, it would also boil up in the kingdom that became his descendants. You see, our depraved longing is to be self-sufficient, and it boils up within us, and we begin to think we can do this on our own. I mean, at its root, every time that you don't pray about something, that's pride. That's, that's you foolishly thinking you don't need to take it to God and ask for his help with it. God continues to speak to the prideful people of Edom, and he prophesies to them that their pride is going to leave them very empty and lonely. Verse 5, God says, If thieves come to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers come to you, would they not leave gleanings? how Esau or Edom has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. God is saying, listen, not only are you going to be destroyed, but you're not going to even have any leftovers once you're destroyed. You're not going to walk away from this with you know, the things you can put in your bag or a U-Haul and go somewhere else for safety. You're going to lose everything. And he gives two analogies, one of thieves and one of vineyard workers. The first one of thieves, that kind of what the Lord is getting at is, um, thieves are only going to take what they see as useful th to them and what they can carry. Um, a dad hack I saw online, you guys, you dads that don't take notes during a sermon, you want to write this down. Uh, when you get you a new extension cord and you go camping, um, you need to wrap electrical tape at various spots in that extension cord, and then you can leave it outside your tent and no one's going to steal it because they're going to think it's an old crappy extension cord that doesn't work and it's been spliced together too many times, so they're not gonna, a thief's not going to take that, right? even though it's a brand new extension cord, okay? Now you can say you learned something today. Um, but the Lord is using that same idea, that a thief is not going to take everything. Y'all ever had your car breaking it, broken into and like the thieves don't take your CDs, like how demoralizing that is to you? <laughs> it's like, dang, I need to get more relevant with my life. Uh, that's what the Lord's getting at, is that, is that thieves are only going to take 
They're not going to empty you out. They're just going to take the things that are most valuable or things they want. The same way with the vineyard workers. They're going to go through and they're going to take the big grapes and the, and the good fruit and the ones that have been kind of squashed or whatever they're going to leave behind. And even in the Old Testament law, a vineyard harvesters were supposed to leave what was called gleanings behind so that the poor could, uh, t- could feed on them. And, and God's saying basically that's very common, but, but when, when the enemy comes through your land, there's going to be absolutely nothing left for you. They're not going to leave behind your crappy CDs and extension cords. They're not going to leave behind um, gleanings from your fields. They're going to take everything. You're going to be left completely empty. And if you find yourself in a life full of pride, chasing after your own securities, rather than devoting yourself to Jesus, you will find at the end of your life that you will be left the same way as Edom. Completely empty. You might have some scraps, but you will learn very quickly that they're worthless to you. Verse 6 says that Edom is going to be pillaged, which, which literally translates to being ransacked. It means that their pride will lead to a complete emptying. And, and the same is, is echoed even in Ecclesiastes to bring that reference back. The preacher in Ecclesiastes, Solomon, says that he had, he had gained more wealth, just like uh, per capita and in relation to the rest of the world's population at that time. He was like the, the Elon Musk or Bill Gates of his day. And he looked back at all that he had accumulated and he writes in that book, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. The word means useless. All that I've acquired in my pride has been useless. It's not been advantageous to me. It's going to pass away. And God says through Obadiah, Edom, you're going to lose everything. And not only are you going to lose all your resources, you're going to lose all your people that you thought were friends and allies to you as well. He says in verse 7, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. And those who eat your bread have set up a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. He says, y'all don't even understand. You can't comprehend what's coming to you. The fall that's going to come upon you. You've been blinded by your pride. And worst of all, even the people that they thought were friends were going to be the very people that would destroy them. Let's look at the last thing, is that humility leads to salvation. The only way for us to be saved is for us to surrender. The Lord makes it very clear from Genesis to Revelation in the whole Bible that the way to come to Him is not proudly, is not to show how, how hard we've worked or how good we are, But the only way to come to him is in a humble admission that we in and of ourselves are nothing. I'm I'm not a uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu expert, surprisingly enough, but I I recently watched a video. I watched a video this week of of a grappling match, which I thought was so interesting. There's a guy named Mikey Musumichi um, who was in a a match against um, a Japanese MMA fighter uh, known as Imanari. His last name's Imanari. And an Imanari is a, is a well-known MMA fighter, and, and he's, his, one of his nicknames is the Grandmaster of Leg Locks. Um, if I could explain that to you, that means that this dude is one of the best in the world at breaking people's legs. Like, that's his specialty. And um, <laughs> Musumichi comes into this fight, and it's a, it's a grappling fight, so they have to submit one another. That's their objective. And I watched, actually, a, a video of the fight where Musumichi gives a commentary on his strategy in the fight. And he begins the fight, as soon as the, as soon as the opening bell happens, Musumichi sits down. He, he gets all the way down on his butt, and he starts kind of like crab walking toward Imanari. 
And, and he, he, he actually leans back on his back and puts his feet up. And he says, what I wanted to do was surrender my leg to Eminari. Now, the guy's known as like the most professional leg breaker in all the world. And he said, I wanted to give him my leg. And the reason he did that was to, um, was to focus all of Eminari's attention so that then he could wrestle and grapple his way around to a stronghold behind Eminari. And in under four minutes, he gets his arm um, around the neck of Eminari and chokes him out in a submission. This is an amazing fight. You can YouTube it if you want to watch it. It only takes four minutes of your time. But it wasn't the fight that necessarily impressed me. Um, it was the humility of uh, Musumichi coming into it that he, um, first of all, surrendered himself to his opponent, but then he also continued in humility to say how powerful and strong his opponent was. And his humility showed that the way that he was going to win the fight, the way for him to have strength was to approach it with surrender. And this makes no sense to us, but it was quite effective for him. And guess what? It's quite effective in the kingdom of God as well. After all, how did Jesus accomplish our salvation? Did he come with swords? Did he come with an army? Did he come establishing a great political revolution? No. He came and surrendered his life so that he could be murdered, but yet found strength and rose from the dead, saving you and I from our sins. And Musumichi's even his whole demeanor is in contrast to most fighters. You've seen the MMA fighters, they come in with that, you know, Conor McGregor-like swagger, and they come into the weigh-in, and they're getting in each other's face. Musumichi walks in, he looks, like a, he looks like a middle school mathlete. Like, he looks like a nerd. I would never call him that to his face, because he could, like, wrestle me and choke me out. But he just looks like a, a dork, and he comes in with this humility, and it's not what you would expect, but out of that humility comes great power, and the same is true of the church. That we are not to lord over the people in our communities and in our lives that don't know Christ and say, look how awesome we are. Look at our strength, flexing our spiritual muscles, showing how we can be holier than thou. But rather we come to the people in our lives that we love deeply who don't yet know Christ and we show them how humble uh, we had to become to come to Jesus. How we had to have a reality of how sinful we were and how unworthy we were to be in the church in the first place. That we're, we're a community of messed up people who have been made saints, not by our own might, but by the might of another, Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And the only question is, is if we're going to bow now in humility and worship or if we'll bow later in shame and humiliation. God says to Edom, the prideful kingdom. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. The Lord says the best that you've got, the best of the best, the smartest, the strongest, will be wiped away. This is the plight of all mankind. There's a story in John chapter 3 where Jesus speaks to a man named Nicodemus. And Jesus reasons with a man named Nicodemus. Jesus actually refers to him in that passage as the teacher of Israel. Using the article the probably indicates that he was the highest ranking or most prominent preacher or teacher in all of the country. And being a, being a, a man of that stature... He kept the law vigorously, and he came to Jesus by night asking him about 
Jesus's mission and who he was and how to inherit eternal life. And Nicodemus represented, most likely, the closest one could physically and spiritually and mentally get to fulfilling God's law. Like in all of Israel, if anyone was the closest to God, we would have expected it to be a man like Nicodemus. And Jesus takes one look at Nicodemus and he says, you've got to be born again. Now it's one thing for, for someone to say something radical, like, like for you to be saved, you're going to have to sell all you own, you're going to have to get rid of your house, you're going to have to start over. You know, that's a radical saying, but, but, but what Jesus is saying was, was felt impossible for Nicodemus. He says, how could I be born again? I mean, that happened once, I can't even remember it, but I don't know how I'm going to do it again. What Jesus is saying is that we are wholeheartedly unfit in our pride and our sin to inherit heaven. We can't do it. There's nothing that we can do on our own to inherit eternal life. The only thing we can do is come to God in humility, on our backs, if you will, and surrender to him. Say, we're yours. We completely and wholly surrender to God and we let him make us new and kill the pride that exists in our hearts. Well, Edom refused to do that. And since they refused to do that, God's wrath was upon them. And anyone today that refuses to submit themselves to God and surrender to God, God's wrath is upon them. The, the city Teman that's mentioned the, in Hebrew literally means right hand. And, and in, in Hebrew culture, right hand was where authority and judgment rested. Even in the New Testament, we, we are told that Jesus is seated where? At the right hand of the Father, seat of power and authority and judgment. And, and Hebrews would call forward-facing, facing eastward, this direction. And so the right hand would be the south. And, and when Habakkuk was kind of complaining to God about all the problems that were going to come to Israel and all the sin that was rampant in Israel, he says, from the direction of Teman, the right hand, judgment is going to come for my people. Well, Teman and Edom, uh, this, this city and this nation thought very proudly that they were used as this instrument of judgment. But in reality, God tells them that judgment is going to come from their right hand, a little bit further south, and it happens in the empire of Babylon. The same Babylon empire that conquered and exiled Israel is most likely the empire that conquers and destroys the tiny kingdom of Edom. What's interesting about this historically is that history doesn't even necessarily record the fall of Edom. There are little hints at it, but there's not really a historical record of the overthrow of Edom. The reality is it wasn't significant enough. The kingdom was obscure. They arise in obscurity. They slowly rise to this pride in their hearts, and then they disappear from the earth in the same way. And by the time we get to the fourth century, they're not even mentioned as existing. They become a mere footnote of history a small kingdom that never amounts to much. And so what I want to finish by showing you is that you can lose everything and be forgotten by depending upon yourself. Your life will become utterly meaningless. Your independence from everyone else will be totally worthless and will be forgotten within a generation or two if you don't wholeheartedly surrender yourselves to the cause of Jesus Christ. But for those of us who see the importance of killing our pride, putting our sin to death, and throwing ourselves at the mercy of a great king, 
We find salvation resting in our hearts. James 4, 6 says, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If you're a prideful person, God is opposed to you. In the same way that Edom had God's anger and wrath upon them, the same is true of prideful people today. We cannot come to Christ proudly, and we cannot come to Christ without denying ourselves. But the good news, what we call the gospel, is that Jesus also denied himself in a greater way than we ever could. Jesus also surrendered in a greater way than we ever could. And Jesus went to the cross to die the death that we deserve so that he could give his righteousness to people like me, people like you. And if you deny yourself and trust in that, then what you'll find is the Spirit will alleviate pride from your soul, will uh, renew your spirit in uh, dwelling with God, and will bring you into a relationship like you've never known. And the good news is it's everlasting. It's not fleeting. It's not fading away. It's for eternity. And that's the good news of Jesus through his death and resurrection. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. To learn more about New Heights Church or a relationship with Christ, please visit our website at www.newheightswv.com.